So good morning. Today we are talking about Gideon in what is probably the more famous story about his life. And the title of today's sermon is Faith with Few, in which we see Gideon and God instructing him to have fewer and fewer people used in the work that God intended on on doing. And so I'm going to pick up in Judges chapter 7, verse 1, and let's take it away. Here we go. So Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, and remember this was his nickname that he got from when he tore down the idols of his father at night. And so before God used him as a mighty warrior to take out the oppressors that have been doing so for seven years to Israel, God had him deal with his own sins at home first. And so Gideon and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength, that they would have a degree of pride in their own actions, that they wouldn't recognize that God was the one that was working through them. Verse 3, Therefore, tell the people, Whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. And so that was a part that we didn't actually fully see all of this language in the video clip that we watched with the kids. But I want to point out, notice that God let go home those who were afraid and those who were unwilling to fight is the implication here. And so what I want to point out is that so far in Gideon's own life, in his own heart, he's often been afraid. He's often been afraid. He, he tore down his dad's idols at night because he was afraid. And even in this very story, it wasn't written in, or shown in the video, but Gideon was afraid this whole time. And we'll actually see that play out. But Gideon, even though he was afraid, Gideon was willing to fight. He was willing to obey the instruction that God had given him. And so I just want to point out that even though Gideon is in the hall of faith, and oftentimes we might consider faith and fear to be these, these opposites at play, Gideon is a person who is exemplifying faith. He is trusting God even when emotionally and intellectually he is afraid. That fear and faith are not necessarily mutually exclusive things. And you can still obey God when you're afraid. It's not like a free get-out-of-jail pass where you're like, oh, I guess I don't have to obey God because I'm scared and he wouldn't want me to do it if I was afraid. No, no, no. God still wants us to obey him regardless. And in the case of the soldiers that went home, it seemed as though they were both afraid and unwilling to obey. And for the sake of Gideon's army, it was more valuable to have those who remain a smaller force to be those who were willing to obey God, willing to fight, than to have a larger force with the majority being, being afraid and working against the goal of the army. And so let me, let me read this passage for you from 2 Timothy 3 about this willingness as being a soldier for Christ. And this is something that Paul writes to Timothy, who is... Uh, a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and, and he's giving him instruction. He says this, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
That, that part of being a good soldier is a willingness to endure suffering and to do so with other believers. That, that Timothy was one that Paul was like, listen, I can't go through this alone. I need you. You are my friend, and I need you to be a good soldier alongside me. That God has purposed you for this. This is part of the description of what a good soldier in Christ Jesus would be. And when it comes to being a good soldier for Christ, we're not talking about having an army and going out and starting a crusade to try to reconquer a territory. And I know I've said it a lot in this series, and I think it's helpful because many of in the Hall of Faith have been about the reclaiming of the land of Israel or the deliverance of the land of Israel. But we, as believers, we're not called to form a nation that is dedicated to God. We are called to go out into all the nations and to make disciples, followers of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and observe all that he has commanded us. And so we are of a different objective. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We're not trying to build an empire. God's kingdom is one that cannot be seen in the normal sense on this earth. But we are going out and among all nations, all peoples, and delivering them from the kingdom of the enemy. So that's the thing that we're doing. And so when Paul's talking about a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he's not trying to like turn Timothy into some sort of insurgent here. No, no, no. He wants him to be a faithful follower of Jesus who loves and cares for his church. Verse 4. This, this is some more detail about soldiers. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. All right, Jesus would describe this in the four-seed parable, that the word of God that is planted in their hearts is such that it is not choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. All right, that a good soldier of Jesus Christ is one that's not going to be so focused on earthly things, so carnally minded that they are of no heavenly good. That they're going to be thinking of and setting their minds on things above rather than building their own kingdoms here and and pursuing their own comforts here. He says, For then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Another aspect of a soldier of Jesus Christ is someone that is aiming to please God rather than trying to please themselves. Okay, and so they're one that is willing to endure suffering, that they're, they're not distracted by this world, and they're aiming to please God. And, and Paul hits a couple other analogies. He says, verse 5, And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. Just a moment ago, I quoted the verse about that we are to teach them to observe all that Jesus has instructed. And if we are to be athletes who win, who have victory, we need to be a people of God who obey the things that Jesus teaches. All right, that's a, that's a good thing that he's called us to do. Verse 6, he has another analogy. Hard-working farmers. Okay, even though we have been, uh, become a part of God's kingdom, and it was by the completed work of Jesus, that does not mean that we're just passive and we just sit back on our couch and let God do all of the work. He has us here on this earth created for good works in Christ Jesus. That we are to be hardworking. That's one of the characteristics that Paul is calling forth in Timothy, his son, in the faith. That hardworking farmers, not only do they work hard, but they also get to enjoy the fruit of their labor. That being a follower of Jesus includes joy. 
a degree of joy that is found in obeying our Lord and the joy that he gives us as we see him work among us and in our midst and through us. It's an amazing joy that we get to experience, but if we refuse to work hard, if we refuse to participate in what God's called us to, we don't get to enjoy the same things that others would do. Verse 8, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news that I preach. Okay, and so we're talking about the good news of the gospel. It's tied in not just the death and burial of Jesus, but also in the resurrection in which we know for sure that God had validated the claims of Christ, that it is finished, that we are forgiven, that his death was indeed an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is good news to us because guilty people, sinners like us, can experience forgiveness because Jesus is alive. That Jesus has forgiven us and what he has declared, he whom the Son has set free, is free indeed. And so this is the good news that Paul proclaims. Verse 9, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering. That faithfully following Jesus does not mean that we only enjoy the first fruits. It's not that our life is only ever convenient and comfortable, that faithfully following Jesus, sometimes in spite of doing the good and right thing, our suffering on this world may, to a degree, increase. And that's what Paul is experiencing. He says, I have been chained like a criminal. He's writing this letter from prison, and he says this, but the word of God cannot be chained. That the word of God is this powerful weapon, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is mighty. It can divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It, is, it has the ability to change and transform us. I mean, I already mentioned earlier that Jesus described it as a seed. And when it reaches our heart, when we clear away the clutter and humble ourselves to receive what God would speak to us, it is a life-producing seed that multiplies many times over the fruit that comes forth. That this is what God's, God's Word does, and it cannot be stopped. Individual followers of Jesus will experience persecution, will experience suffering, but they will, will continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel, and God's Word continues to go forth even when they are persecuted. I think of, for instance, Stephen as he's stoned and killed for the sake of pro proclaiming Jesus, and the Apostle Paul, I imagine that is a portion of the seed or the watering that was taking place in his life that eventually brought him to Christ. But check this out, verse 10. And this is, so we've, in this passage we saw the word soldier, and now we also see this word willing. Paul says, so I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. And so Paul is a soldier who is willing to endure whatever he encounters for the sake of those who he, whom he loves in, in declaring the truth of the gospel to them, but also he's interested and mindful of the glorification of Jesus, the Son of God. That the work he's doing is for the sake of others and for the glory of God. And we see both of those things at play 
in the Gideon story, that he sent away the soldiers who were fearful and unwilling, and he kept only those who remained. Let's keep reading in Gideon, verse 4. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go and who will not. Now this passage, I'm actually unsure what the significance is as far as like cupping with your hand or slurping from the stream. Other people like guess that, oh, you know, the person that cups with their hand, they don't have to put their weapons down, they're alert, scanning the horizon. Maybe, maybe. I think in a sense, the objective is clear right here in this verse. It's all about God's just like, I'm just having an arbitrary test to a degree to indicate who I'm going to use for this purpose and for the rescue of Israel. I think it was just a matter of, of calling the group, just cutting, cutting back the group to a much smaller number so God would be glorified. But either way, you might have a different thought than that, and that's fine. And so uh, when Gideon took his warriors, verse 5, down to the water, the Lord said to him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. And in the other group, those who kneel down and drink with their mouths uh, in the stream. Only 300 men drank from their hands, and all the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the streams. Verse 7, the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. But notice, before Gideon sends them home, he does one more thing. Verse 8, so Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. And so even though he had the 10,000, he chose to keep certain resources from the full 10 and then equipped the remaining 300 with them. And God is going to use those 300 to deliver Israel. Uh, The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. Verse 9, that night the Lord said, get up. This reminds me of the angel waking up Peter in the prison. That sometimes God alerts you and says, get up, go do what I'm telling you to do. Go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you a victory over them. And so once again, this whole story is about what God is doing, not about what Gideon and his soldiers are doing. It's not as though they are earning this victory by their own strength or by their own numbers or even by their own cleverness. All right? It is God who is giving them the victory. It is God who is rescuing them. Okay? Uh, he says, verse 10, and check this out. But if you are afraid right, to attack, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. And so notice, God uh, has an allowance for Gideon being afraid in this moment. God is accounting for the fact that Gideon's going to obey him, right? Get up, go and do this. But he's acknowledging, Gideon, you might be afraid. I'm still asking you to do this anyway. And I'm going to even allow a friend to go with you. Okay, and so this is what God allows in this man who is known for his faith. That even though we might at times grow in our faith and display great faith, oftentimes we need our friends with us. That God has placed people in your life to equip you, to train you, to encourage you. That when you have a moment of doubt or a difficulty or stumble in sin, 
That you have someone with you that can call you up and encourage you. Someone that can lift you up and, and lead you back to the mission that God's given you. Right? Jesus did this even with his disciples when he sends out the 72 into the towns ahead of him in his ministry. He sends them out in pairs. And so I just want to point out, like, the work that God calls us to do is sometimes terrifying. But God is faithful to place people in your life for the sake of equipping you and discipling you, sometimes even mutually encouraging one another. And so, uh, so here we go, verse 10. So if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. And so this, uh, this spy mission that God is sending him on uh, isn't just a means of gathering intel, all right? but somehow Gideon is going to be encouraged on this. So God notices that Gideon is afraid, and Gideon's possibly a little bit discouraged. Okay, he's like, oh man, I've got only 300 left. We were already outnumbered to begin with. And, and now, like, I'm not sure how God's going to do this. And so, Gideon took Purah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. And so what does that verse tell us? The end of verse 11 tells us that Gideon was afraid. God made the allowance for Gideon, saying, if you're afraid, take your friend. And then we find out Gideon's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to take my friend, <laughs> right? And so this is evidence that someone who's known for their faith in the scriptures, celebrated by the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring the author of Hebrews, is someone who in the very moment we remember them most for, they're afraid. And God sends with them a friend. Verse 13, Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp, and it hit a tent, turned it over, and it knocked down flat. Okay, so this is this dream. And, and this next verse, I love this. Sometimes there's these like little nuggets of truth in the scriptures in which the, the unbeliever, the pagan person, all right, the person who is not the hero of the faith, demonstrates a claim of God's truth with greater certainty than the hero of faith themselves do. Like, as you read through the scriptures, look for these moments. It's terribly amusing when the people who are not of God are speaking more faith than the people of God. And so, verse 14, his companion said, Your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. And so this is just like this cool moment. This is an unbeliever believing these promises of God more than Gideon who's afraid and is bringing his friend. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. And this was, this was the encouragement that God wanted Gideon to have. This was the purpose that God sent him on that quest, was to hear this dream and its interpretation and realize, God, you're really going to do this. You're really going to do this, aren't you? And so Gideon is encouraged, and immediately he worships God. This is the moment where his faith, is, it clicks for him. He trusts God, and he worships God for what is about to happen before it happens. And that's what faith is, right? It's this, this, uh, this hope of what's going to happen based on what God has promised, based on the sure character and integrity of God's promises. 
And, and this is what Gideon has in that moment. He hears it from the mouths of the enemy, and he realizes what God's going to do, and he worships God. Then he returns to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given, a, given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. And so they place the torch in the jar, which is kind of this interesting moment. So they've got a, a horn and a jar with a torch in it. And I, I would suspect that many of these are the supplies that Gideon had taken from the group of 10,000, that he now had enough of these things to be able to give to the remaining 300. Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19, it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp, and suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Now, what I think is interesting here is that the majority of the work that Gideon does in his life, that he's known for, it happens at night. He tears down his dad's altars at night because he's afraid. He lays out the fleece as he's seeking a sign from God at night. And he's like, all right, God, are you really doing this? You know, like, I, I want to know for, from you that you're doing this. And he does this at night when maybe others don't see or know that he's doubting. And, and here, right, he goes, he, he sneaks into the enemy camp at night with his buddy, Pura, And then that same night runs back to his army, wakes him up, and sends him out just after midnight. And so all of these things happen at night for Gideon in his life. Verse 20, Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And so in this moment, like you can kind of try to figure out, piece together what's taking place, right? They've got a jar, a torch, a horn, and possibly swords, okay? But they've only got two arms, and they're holding three of those things, but the, they're not holding the sword. Yet they're shouting, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They don't even have them, like, equipped. They're, it's probably, like, in a sheath or something. But what they are holding, it seems, because the torch was in the jar, it seems as though they lit the torches, kept them in the jar, and were holding the ram's horn, and because the torches were covered partially, they could sneak up to the enemy camp, that the light was hidden from them until the jars were shattered, revealing the light surrounding the Midianite and the others' armies that were in the valley below. All right, so that seems to be what's taking place in that moment. Verse 21, each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. And so, like, those are the very swords that the enemies marched over the river and into Israel with to attack Israel, and now they're being used against one another. 
These are the swords that are doing all the work. It's not Gideon and his 300 men. It's the swords of the enemy. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shittah, near Zerara, to the border of Abel Mahola, near Tabith. And so, this is just so cool that God is able to bring about confusion in the enemy camp. That they may have been trusting in their own number. They may have been trusting in their own strength. They have been trusting in their own experience. And yet God was able to, in a moment, bring about confusion to all of that, putting to shame the wise and the mighty, and bringing victory to those who were weak. Right? A group of soldiers in Gideon's army, a small portion of them, who had been experiencing seven years of oppression. These are not mighty men. And yet God was able to deliver victory to them by using all of the enemy's resources and strengths and talents against themselves as he delivers victory over to them. Right? And this is similar to what happens in the, on the cross where the enemy believes that he is winning and gaining victory over the Son as all of his attempts to destroy, betray, deny Christ are being brought upon the Son. And yet, in that moment, the enemy doesn't realize that through the death of Christ, many are being brought to freedom. Many sons are being called to glory. That in a moment, all of the enemy's resources are being now turned against him and that he played the part that brought the victory to the family of God. Verse 23, Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, who joined in chasing the army of Midian. And so he's got the 300, and now he sends a message, all right, get the whole crew, these guys are running away, we're going to chase them down, so they no longer show up to oppress God's people. Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down to attack the Midianites, cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan River at Beth Barah. And so all the men of Ephraim did as they were told. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two Midianite commanders, killing Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They continued to chase down the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought maybe a little graphic for kids, uh, Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan River. Now check out uh, verse 1 in chapter 8. So all of this happens. Ephraim participates in a lot of this work. And the people of Ephraim ask Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight against the Midianites? They're kind of upset. Like, why didn't you... Why didn't you call us for help? Like, we deserve to participate in the battle. We deserve a portion of the spoils. Why didn't you invite us? And you might think Gideon, if he was a man full of pride, was like, no, just me and my 300 dudes, like, we've got this covered. We don't even need your help, right? Like, we're good. We had no problem at all. We're just happy to hang out right now, right? But no, that's not what Gideon says. But they argued with Gideon heatedly. Verse 2, Gideon replied, this is, notice the humility that he demonstrates. What, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes in Ephraim, your harvest, better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? He's like, listen, like, the things you leave on the ground as scrap is way more than all of my tribe's work <laughs> to produce a harvest. He's like, you've done so much more than I ever do. 
He's got great humility. Verse 3, But God gave you the victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? And when the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger had subsided. And so notice about Gideon. He's incredibly humble. He is not able to boast that he had won this victory. Because the whole time, God has been speaking that the Lord is the one that's going to rescue them. The Lord is the one that's going to give the Midianite army over to them. And Gideon, even after the victory, when he could have claimed all this glory for himself, he says what? That the Lord, God gave you victory. Even you, Ephraim. God was the one that did it. And then he humbles himself. He just puts himself into the background. No, I, I, I hardly did anything here. What have I done compared to what God did through you? And so Gideon was willing to give glory to God and humble himself. And so here are some themes for us to consider. In this whole story, we are to recognize that we should not trust in our own strength. That we need to trust in the Lord. All right, many times throughout Israel's history, they trust in the, the strength of Egypt to deliver them from Assyria or Babylon. All right, they're, they're looking to human strength to rescue them. But no, in this story and in our lives, we are called to trust in God and not in our own talents and abilities. Okay, that they, they were trusting in God. We see in this story that it was not all about numbers. That God intentionally does great things through very few people. That he can do amazing things without having a lot of resources to work with. That God lets his omnipotence be put on display and glory given to him because it doesn't take a lot of faithful, willing soldiers of Christ to accomplish the good work that God has called us to do. Think about the story of the loaves and fishes in Matthew 14. Jesus saw a huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And that evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But notice what Jesus does. He said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. Right? And there's this vast crowd and there's 12 disciples. And they're like, okay, but we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. They were looking at their limited resources, their small group. They were outnumbered and had no ability in their own strength to be able to feed the crowds. But Jesus says, bring them here, he said. Bring them here. And then he told the people to sit down in the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two two fish, looked up to heaven, and blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to, to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up the 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. And so notice, in this story and in the story of Gideon, God is able to use the little that we have when we're willing to give it up, all of it up, and that we still participate in the work. Jesus does the miracle, Jesus has the power, but he has the disciples give of what they have, he has the disciples distribute the resources, 
They're doing all of that work. And he has the disciples gather the leftovers, which, by the way, I love that God, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, sometimes provides through leftovers. All right, like that God, God does that as well. He's very practical sometimes, right? All right, but God is able to do mighty things with few or limited resources. Another thing I want to point out is that this story is also about glory. It's about the glory that God deserves and that we should not take for ourselves. Everett, go over to Matthew chapter 5. And this is connected in multiple ways to this passage. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Verse 15. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, wait a minute. No one takes a light and puts it under a basket? Isn't that pretty much what Gideon and his soldiers did? They lit their torches but hid them in jars. But upon the moment, upon the command and instructions of God and spoken through Gideon, that's when they break the jars. And on the hillside surrounding the valley, the light is on display for all to see. All right, that the light was meant to shine forth in that right moment. And that that glory of God was on display. Verse 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. All right, or other translations say that let men see your good works that they might glorify your Father in heaven. That our good works are not done for our own glory. All right, in fact, previously in the same sermon, Jesus talks about those who do good works to be seen by others and that they have their reward. And our God sees in secret and rewards openly. But when we do our works as unto the Lord, they are to be done before others. Assuming we're humble like Gideon and willing to set aside ourselves and make sure that our Father is the one that is going to be glorified. That Jesus calls us to do that very work. That the good works we do as unto the Lord are part of the light that we shine forth in addition to the, proof, uh, the truth that we proclaim. Another passage that I want us to consider that's connected is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile jars of clay containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. And so in the same parallel analogy, Paul is writing, and he says, we believers, followers of Christ, that we are earthen vessels, jars of clay, bearing light, bearing treasure, and it's obvious, it's obvious to the world that it's not because we are the strong or we are the wise, but it is God's glory on display through his humble people. All right, that's part of the plan and purpose of God's design. All right, that we fragile earthen pots with cracks and all are displaying God's light even through our, our frailty, even through our brokenness, 
God is glorified, that this is about God being glorified. The last verse I want us to look at is, is Judges 7-2. Judges 7-2. Because this is a passage, that, this sermon is not just about followers of Jesus who need to obey God even when afraid and to believe that God has equipped us with friends and one another to encourage us along the way, but it's also to remind us about God's plan of salvation for those who don't yet believe. In Judges 7-2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. The good news that we proclaim is that there's no amount of righteousness or good works that we could produce that would ever bring about our salvation. That Jesus is glorified because he has completed the work for us on the cross. That he bore our sin, that we could be gifted and given his righteousness. All right, That we don't get to boast about the good things we do. And none of them, no amount of them would ever pile up to be a worthy amount of righteousness that we could offer to God, to be deserving of relationship with him. That Jesus does the work and we do not save ourselves by our own strength. And that lets us be bold. That lets us invite the many because we can say if God was willing to save a sinner like me, then surely you are invited too that we can let our light shine forth and we're not boasting in, look how good I am. It's about look how good God is in his mercy that he likewise offers to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, that, Lord, we recognize, Lord, we are a small church in a small town. And, Lord, we recognize we have no ability to do great things in our own strength. Lord, we are a people who are few. But Lord, let us be encouraged that you are mighty, you are glorified, you are omnipotent. Lord, you are working through broken vessels like us. I thank you, God, that even when we are afraid, even when we feel outnumbered in our own community, that God, you have called us to obey you. You have called us to endure. You have called us not to be entangled with the cares of this world. You have called us to place our hope in you to obey and do the good works that you've called us to. And that, Lord, through a humble people like us, you will do mighty things. Use us, Lord. Use this church to continue to pour out in India and in Kenya. Use this church. Use these people, these believers, Father God, to display the power of your spirit and the forgiveness and grace that you have given us. Lord, use us to proclaim good news, even if it means suffering, to our towns, to our communities, to southern Vermont, and to see you give the victory as you bring many sons and daughters to glory. Lord, we pray this. We desire this. We humble ourselves. It's not about us. It's all about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.